turn with me in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2, and I'm going to read from verses 11 through to 22. Let's hear God's Word. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision, by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments and ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who are far off and peace to those who are near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Do please sit down. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul shall make her boast in the Lord. The humble shall hear thereof and be glad. O magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. I'm grateful to God for another beautiful expression of his grace toward us. He's given us another day to rejoice and be glad in him. I'm grateful to God for traveling grace here for myself and for a few of the members from New Zion Baptist Church. I'm grateful to God for your pastor, Dr. Joshua Moody, and for his faithful witness to the person and work of Jesus Christ here in this locality. And I thank you in advance for your patience as well as your focus. I want to, um, because I was so concerned about whether they made it here safely, my wife is here, my daughter is here, and some of our adopted children. I want them to stand, if they might, just so you can see them. These are some of the members of my wife's uh, young adult small group, and I want to thank them for playing hooky today and coming 
spend time with the old man. Let's get some rules of engagement out the way and then let's dive into the text. Number one, uh, since we're all family, and I'll prove that from the text here momentarily, uh, don't act like you don't know me. I'm uh, the uncle you've never met, the cousin that you love who lives far away. I'm just family. And so that leads to the second rule of engagement, and that is I'm from that part of the family that tends to be expressive in worship and tends to be <laughs> conversational at the sermonic moment. And so I'm uh, accustomed to when you hear the truth for you to say amen. amen. <laughs> <And> thank you. <laughs> but I, I don't want to foist my uh, cultural predilections on all of you, those of you who don't feel comfortable saying amen, I would ask that you would meet me halfway and just look amen. <laughs> so let's practice together. If you'll just look at the people on your pew, down your row, and if you see someone who does not look amen, will you raise your hand and point them out so <laughs> that we can have them escorted out expeditiously? Well, with your promise that you'll either say or look amen, Let's look at the text. Today, as we look at Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 22, with the thought, the focus on verse 14 as the pivot point where it says, He is our peace. One of the curious and destructive tendencies of habits of humankind is to build walls to keep the other away. Now, to be sure, sometimes walls are necessary uh, for personal safety and to delineate boundaries. But most often, walls are designed to keep the other at bay because we discount or devalue the other. So, whether it's physical walls like the Wall of China, the Great Wall of China, or the Berlin Wall, or the Wall in Israel to keep Israeli and Palestinians separate, or even the proposed wall here in the United States of America to separate us from Mexico, most often walls are designed to keep those who we label as the other away from us. Walls keep the other away, and sometimes we use as an argument that separate is equal. But separate is inherently unequal because it denies the essential irreducible interdependence that God has built into the fabric of human society. Not all walls are tangible. I remember growing up in Elwood, Kansas, and though it was not written anywhere, my friends and those who went to school with me and worshiped at the church I worshiped at knew that when the sun went down, we better be on a particular side of the tracks because if we were on the other side of the tracks, after sundown, it could mean 
our very lives. Walls. We like walls, but the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ in this text is that he is our peace and he has, through his blood, not only brought us near, but broken down the barrier, broken down the dividing wall of hostility that historically had kept the insiders and the outsiders, those who were far away and those who were near, the privileged and the not-so-privileged, separate from one another. Paul, it's very interesting when you think about Paul's relationship with the church at Ephesus. As we read about it in Acts, particularly in Acts chapter 19 and 20, if you think about how that ties into this letter specifically, that Paul is writing the letter to the church at Ephesus from jail. How did he get into jail? Why was he arrested? Well, according to Acts, it was because he was falsely accused of bringing Trophimus the Ephesian into the sanctuary, into the holy precincts, because at the temple there in Jerusalem, there were dividing walls between the court of the Gentiles and the court in which the male Jews could go and worship. There were dividing walls between the court of women and uh, the, the sanctuary. And archaeologists have shown us that even the inscription on the wall that divided the court of Gentiles from the court in which the Jewish men could worship was very specific in its warning as well as its purpose because the inscription reads, no foreigner may enter within the barricade which surrounds the sanctuary and enclosure. Anyone who is caught doing so will have himself to blame for his ensuing death. Walls. Paul in prison because they said he brought somebody past the wall. So in this letter to the church, to the saints at Ephesus, he points out to them this this richly theological letter that really focuses in on the riches that are ours by the grace of God. He starts out in verse 3 of chapter 1 talking about how we've been blessed and how we're positioned in heavenly places. We've been chosen. We've been adopted. We've been redeemed. We've been forgiven. All of the, We've been sealed by the Holy Spirit. He breaks into praise and to prayer in verse 15 of chapter 1 talk, talking about, for this very reason, I pray certain things for you in the church that your eye, the eyes of your hearts will be enlightened and all these types of things. In chapter 2, verse 1, he says, remember now you were once dead in your trespasses and sins, alienated from the life of God. But God being rich in mercy, he lavished on us in the richness of his grace. Uh, he, He brought us into right relationship with him for by grace we have been saved. Through faith. It's God's gift, not of works, lest any man should boast. And we are his masterpieces, his poems, his, his 
magnum opi. I don't know if that's even right, but let's say it's right for right now. His masterpieces, created in Christ Jesus unto good works which he beforehand ordained that we should walk in them. And he starts out here in our text in verse 11. Let's look at the structure first and you'll see how the argument flows. Verse 11, he says, therefore, based upon everything I've just talked about, all that is ours in Christ through the riches of his grace, therefore, he speaks to the Gentile believers and articulates to them, reminds them of where they once were before Christ. But then in verse uh, 15, he says, but now, he, he reminds them of their past, but in verse 15, uh, pardon me, verse 13, he says, but now in Christ Jesus, and he describes uh, their current status. And then in verse 19, he says, so then, in other words, given where you were, given what Christ has done, so then, here's how you ought to live. Here's how you ought to view yourself. Here's what your real identity is based upon who Jesus is and what he's done. So let's unpack it. Verse 11, he says, therefore, you Gentiles who were formerly called or labeled the uncircumcision. If you look in your Bible, uncircumcision is in quotes. Uh, He says, you were once labeled the uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision. See, again, all laws are not brick and mortar, not wood and metal. Some walls and, and the most dangerous walls are those walls that are erected when we create a hierarchy of value as it relates to people. When we label the other so that we can discount them. Jesus had a lot to say about that. Remember in Matthew chapter 5, he says, you've heard it said by them of old that you shall not commit murder, but I say unto you, if you're angry with your brother without cause, and if you call him, if you label him, if, if you discount his value by calling him a fool, by calling him this or that, you're already guilty. So Paul says, now remember, you used to be labeled by those who call themselves the circumcision. You used to be labeled the uncircumcision. It wasn't just a technical term. It was a derogatory term. You remember when David went to go fight Goliath, he says, who is this uncircumcised so-and-so? It was a label. Of, it was a derogatory term. He says, you used to have a particular label, but, and not only that, um, you were separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenant. Because, of the, because you were alienated from Christ, uh, that is, still dead in your trespasses and sins, you were excluded additionally from the commonwealth, from the citizenry of Israel, and therefore you couldn't claim the privilege and prerogatives of that family, of the covenants of promises. And so you were without hope because you didn't have God in this world. You were completely estranged and therefore hopeless. Ah, verse 13, but now. I hope you have a but now in your life. I I hope that you, like me, can remember what it was like before you knew Christ and how hopeless you were. Uh, have, Have you gotten so saved that you forgot what it felt to be lost? 
Do you remember? You, you haven't always been where you are right now. And don't get sanctified amnesia and forget that you too, you and I, even if you grew up in church, you were still dead, walking dead, sanctified zombies. However, but now in Christ, because of who Jesus is and what he's done, well, look at it, verse 13, in Christ you were formerly far off, have been brought near. That's a technical, that's technical uh, terminology, this idea of far versus near those who were uh, those who were proselytized to the Jewish religion, the terminology they would use was now that they were brought near. In other words, if you weren't Jew, you were far away, but if you converted, you were near. But Paul borrows that and he repurposes that phraseology and says that those of us who were once alienated and not part of the commonwealth, those of us who were once far off from God have been brought near by the blood of Jesus Christ because he himself is our peace. Let's talk about this idea of he is our peace. All of us, and I want to sort of show my hand up front, he has done all of this that I'm getting ready to describe by his blood, by his, his atoning sacrifice, by the propitiation of his blood, by the flesh that was offered on the cross, he has brought us near. He himself is our peace. Now, this idea of peace, he himself is our peace. Our peace is not found in a program or an approach. It's found in a person. He's the author of peace. He's the prince of peace, according to Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. And this suggests something that we need to never discount. When it says he is our peace, it's not talk, peace is not talking about just merely the absence of conflict or the absence of war. Peace, from a biblical perspective, shalom in the Hebrew and the Old Testament, irony in the Greek, suggests more this harmonious interaction, this state of foolish, fullest flourishing in every dimension, this interdependence, this relationship that God created that all reality should be woven into, woven into one beautiful fabric that works harmoniously together. So peace, then, is the harmonious working of all that God has created in the way that he designed it to work. And so when it says he is our peace, this text is pointing out to us that on the cross, Jesus did more than just reconcile us back to God. See, part of the reason that we are struggling in America right now in the Christian church as it relates to how we can break down some dividing walls that keep 11 o'clock as the most segregated hour in our nation is because our gospel has not really taken into full account all of the dimensions of our salvation, meaning very specifically, when sin, this foreign power, this, this foreign power that was let loose by our rebellion was turned loose in the world, it did not just separate us from God, it separated us from one another. When Adam and Eve sinned, the first thing they did was hide from God, but then they hid from one another. You know what they did? They made fig 
leave aprons. Only two people in the world, what are they hiding from? And how is an apron going to help you when the back is still? (laughs) But sin causes alienation, causes separation between us and God. Us, that's spiritual problems between us and one another. That's societal problems. And even intrapersonally, I'm not all together. I, I'm not at one with myself, let alone sin has caused chaos in the cosmos. That's why the Bible says in Romans chapter 8 that all of creation is yet groaning under the weight of sin. But the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ is better than you realize it to be. It's because, it's because of who Jesus is and what he's done through his blood, by his flesh being offered on the cross. He's reconciled us to God, and now we have the capacity to be reconciled one to another and reconciled intrapersonally. And one day we'll have a brand new heaven and new earth retrofitted to accommodate his sons and daughters. He is our peace. He is the one that brings everything back together the way God designed it to be. Not only is he our peace, he makes peace. You see that in the end of verse 15. Because of what he's done in his flesh, he's he's nullified the detrimental effects of the law and therefore made peace with us, with God, and with one another. And now, through his body, we have access to God because he's put to death. He's killed the enmity, the enmity, the hostility between us toward God and between us and one another. Okay. He's done all of that through his precious propitiating blood and through his atoning sacrifice on the cross. He himself, Jesus Christ, not a program, not an approach, but the very person of Christ embodied this harmonious relationship between us and God, between us and one another. Therefore, the cross has dealt with the horizontal as well as the vertical aspects of sin. And now, in Jesus, all of the cosmos is being brought back together to God's original purpose, plan, and design. Okay. So if we used to be alienated, if we used to be separate, if we used to be non-citizens, if we used to be alien to the very commonwealth of Christ, commonwealth of God, but now Jesus, through his blood, through his flesh on the cross, has killed the enmity, he's broken down the dividing wall that keeps Gentile and Jew from one another, the insider and the outsider from being hostile to one another. Then verse 19 says, so then, here's what that means for your identity and my identity. And here then is how we ought to live. Verse 19 says, Okay, so then, because of who Jesus is and what he's done, you're no longer aliens. Used to be aliens, strangers, separate. You're no longer aliens and strangers. You're no longer counted as the other. But now you are, number one, fellow citizens. 
In other words, because of who Jesus is and what he's done, as opposed to the labeling, the social constructs of hierarchy that sets one socioeconomic status or one ethnicity or one group above another group, now we're all level at the foot of the cross and we're one nation. We're, we're one nation. We're fellow citizens. Now, let me hit this right quick because, see, this is alien to the American Christian ear because we don't have enough usness in our religion. We pray it, but we don't believe it. Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. It goes on to talk about give us this day our daily bread. Lead us not into We don't have enough usness. And so when we hear things like this, it seems foreign to us. We're fellow citizens. And so what that simply means is that we have to move beyond just talk of racial reconciliation and get to gospel solidarity. We're one nation. We're part of the same citizenry. And as citizens of the same nation, we have rights and responsibilities to one another. Citizens of the same nation, we, we have a solidarity that goes beyond socioeconomic strata and goes beyond ethnic background and goes beyond uh, gender roles and all those types of things. We're one nation. So up in Rockford, Illinois, where I live, which is near the Wisconsin border, we have an unfortunate dynamic in the community and even in the church where there are some individuals who are part of what they call the Packer Nation. <laughs> These so-called cheeseheads are those who, once they put on the green and gold of green and yellow of the Green Bay Packers, all ethnicity, all socioeconomic differences, all political differences are put aside because we're part of the Packer Nation. I've, I've met these cheeseheads everywhere. I've gone to the East Coast. I've gone to the West Coast. Green Bay isn't that big, but they have such a solidarity that they will sit in subarctic conditions. And a white man will put on the jersey that has a black man's name on the back and will cheer that black man on as he tries to take the head off of a white man. <laughs> because there's something about the solidarity of the Packer Nation that once they get into that stadium and once their team gets on the field, all of these other differences that make a difference on the outside mean nothing once our team is playing. As Christians, we're one nation. We have a greater solidarity than somebody who's running a pigskin. Because we've been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. And he's torn down the dividing wall that would make us look at the other as something other than our fellow citizens. Not just fellow citizens. Look what else he says. He says, verse 19, we're no longer strangers, but fellow citizens with the saints, and are of God's household. So not just one nation, we're one family. We're fellow heirs. We have the same father. 
we have the same blood that has redeemed us. One family, family heirs. And that, that means that if we're family, we don't just accommodate one another, but there's an intimacy there that goes beyond rights and responsibilities and gets into privileges and prerogatives. See, if you come to my house and you're not family, don't be going in my refrigerator. You, that's not your prerogative. You, you don't have that. Don't go into certain rooms. We have junk closets and uh, junk drawers. You have it too. Look, look amen right there. <laughs> and there, there, there are certain things that, you, that guests can't do, even though you're trying to accommodate them, that family can do. My family and I, we, we might fuss and fight. We might argue and all those types of things. But you better not say nothing about my family. Why? Because there's an intimacy. There's a relationship that goes beyond legal status that gets down into relationship and fellowship that allows us to move from accommodation to actual gospel hospitality. Dr. Charlie Dates, when he was going to Trinity, lived uh, with our family for about four years. And he wasn't our guest. He became part of the family to such an extent that there were certain dishes that he loved that my wife learned to cook that I didn't particularly care for, but since he's part of the family, we got to eat it. There are some things that I like to eat. He didn't, he didn't start out liking asparagus and all these types of vegetables, but hey, you part of the family, you're going to eat what mama puts on the table. Why? Because we're family. And it doesn't matter what the, listen, family is more important than the food. And so we learn how to yield to one another. We learn how to work with one another to make sure that the other thrives. So whatever he needed while he was part of and staying with our family, if something happened to his car, I gave him the keys to my car because he's family. This text is teaching us that given our former status and the tremendous transformation that Christ has made in our lives, not just reconciling us to God by tearing the veil down so we have access, but by breaking down the dividing wall so that now we're one nation and one family, that means that we have to learn how to yield, how to stay at the table, even when family members get on our nerves. It's very interesting. Uh, last Sunday was the anniversary of that terrifying riot in Charlottesville where life was lost and it was a flashpoint even for our nation as it relates to the racial animus and the rhetoric that has been roiling over these last couple of years. But there was a bright spot in that. There was a young man named Ken Parker who was at that rally a year ago, August the 12th. He was part of the Nazis. He had been part of the Ku Klux Klan, but he felt they were not hateful enough, so he joined the Nazis, and he was there at the rally shouting racial epithets and instigating violence. But seven months after that rally, he ran into a black pastor named Pastor McKinnon, all Saints Holiness Church there, and that pastor invited him to church. He prayed to receive Christ. They baptized him, and 
as he was standing there in his baptismal robe and looking at his new family, he said, I like this robe better. Because there's something about the blood of Jesus Christ. There's something about what he accomplished on Calvary that does not just get us right with God, it gets us right with other people to such an extent that you become even part of family and you acknowledge that all your kinfolk ain't your skinfolk. Well, look at what else he says here. We're, yeah, we're one nation, we're one family. But look at verse 20 through 22. He says, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into, the holy, into a holy temple in the Lord in whom you also are being built together, built together, built together. Notice what he's saying here. We're fitted together and we're built together into a dwelling of God in the spirit. We're not just one nation. We're not just one family. We're one temple. The Bible indicates that Jesus said, upon this rock, I will build my church. And he's using, according to Peter, 1 Peter chapter 2, he's using living stones. And you and I are bricks in this building that Christ is erecting to his glory as a dwelling for the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit does not just dwell and dwell us individually, but this text, as well as many other passages in the Bible, many other passages in the Bible indicates that we are the dwelling of the Holy Spirit. So that speaks to us moving past indifference to interdependence. See, it speaks to this thing we don't like to talk about in American Christianity, and that is corporate sanctification. It's not just enough that he's my personal Lord and Savior. He has to be our Lord and Savior, and what you do matters to me, and what I do matters to you. We're in this piece together, and we're being built together as we fit with one another. Now, since You and I are not the architect nor the contractor. You don't get to determine where you fit in the building. And you cannot discount other bricks because they're not in your position. The truth of the matter is we're all part of the same building and he, according to his own purpose, plan, and design, is putting us exactly where we need to be. And as a corporate structure, we're bearing witness to the person and work of Jesus Christ and we are a dwelling of the Holy Spirit. Now, that goes beyond just this local assembly. College Church in Wheaton is part of a greater building that Christ is building right here in Wheaton and in this region. In other words, one church can't do all that God has designed to be done within a particular locale. We're interdependent. That's what peace, that's what shalom is about. He is our peace means that we have to learn how to stop being stuck up bricks. Got to learn how to let God choose where you fit in and how you fit in with the rest of the body, with the rest of the building. It's very interesting. If you follow this temple motif all the way out, we don't have time to do it here today, but if you trace it all the way out, this concept of a space where God and man can meet, which was embodied in the person of Jesus Christ. He became the temple, but notice when we trace it all the way out to Revelation, 
when we get to that city, there will be no temple. But if you read the places in Revelation where it says, uh, where John, as he's taking this virtual tour, particularly in uh, chapter 21 and 22, and he says, and I saw no temple there, he says, because God himself will be with them. We are the temple here and now. So that if this brick and mortar were somehow destroyed by a tornado or by some natural tragedy, the church would still be intact because we are the temple. We are one holy nation and we are family. So what then is the upshot of this? If he is our peace, if he has established peace by abolishing the enmity that was contained in the ordinances and by breaking down the dividing wall there at the cross, how then ought we to live? Well, January 8th, 2011, Seattle Seahawks were playing the New Orleans Saints in Quest Field there in Seattle. Saints were favored to win. They were the reigning Super Bowl champs. But then, late in the game, it was in the fourth quarter, late in the game, the Seattle Seahawks, whose solidarity is legendary, it's hard to win in that stadium because they make so much noise. And they're so in tune to their players that the fans are called the 12th man. They slipped up and gave the ball to Marshawn Lynch, that tremendous running back. They called a play, 17 power, and as he was running off right tackle, they stuffed him at the line of scrimmage, but somehow or another he shook and broke loose, and headed toward the sidelines, and as he was running and breaking tackle after tackle, stiff-arming people, in an impossible show of athletic prowess, he made it into the end zone. As he jumped in the end zone, he jumped in backwards and gave those who were trying to tackle him one last sign of disrespect. But here's the point. When he scored that touchdown, the fans, the Seattle Seahawk nation, got so excited they started stomping their feet, raising their voices, stomping their feet and raising their voices to such an extent that the whole stadium started shaking. And you can verify this. You can look it up for yourself. They created an earthquake. Because of what one man did, they in solidarity shook the whole stadium and it showed up on the Northwest Pacific side seismograph as an earthquake and they couldn't figure out what was going on because there was no fault there in Seattle. Huh? But when one nation wearing one uniform decides to celebrate what one person has done on the field, the whole world can move. I point that out not because I'm a Seattle Seahawks fan, but because I know someone who's better than Marshawn Lynch. I know someone who did more than run a football. I know someone who was wounded for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities, and the chastisement of our peace 
was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. And if we could all just get together, and if we could all just make enough noise about him, we could move the entire world. With every head bowed, great God, our Father, we bow in humble reverence, recognizing that had you not bowed your head, lavished us with your rich mercy and grace, we would still be dead in our trespasses and sins, alienated from the life of God, excluded from the commonwealth of your people, and not able to claim your precious promises. But thank you for the precious propitiating blood of Jesus Christ and what was accomplished on Calvary. Thank you for calling us into the kingdom so that we're now fellow citizens with all the saints. Thank you for giving us a surrogate family so that now we have brothers and sisters that we haven't even met yet. And thank you for allowing us to be part of this building project that you're accomplishing here in the earth. I pray your blessings upon your people. May we forever remember our identity in Christ and where we would be had you not lavished your grace upon us to the glory of the praise of your grace. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.